Well, if you would take out the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3. We continue our study through the book of Philippians, Joyful Witnesses. And as you turn there, I'll remind you of the context. Remember, Paul planted this church and uh, went about his missionary journeys and um, eventually um, was arrested, beaten, sent to uh, jail and imprisoned and then shipped to Rome on a prison ship. And the church in Philippi seemed to be a very joyous church committed to the gospel. They are worried, concerned about the Apostle Paul. And so they they send a servant named Epaphroditus that we talked about last week. And he goes with a gift, resources to encourage Paul on behalf of the church, some 800 miles on horse and carriage in boats, walking. Could have taken him anywhere from six months to a year to get to the Apostle Paul in prison. And yet along the way, he gets sick. The text says, unto death. He almost dies with this sickness. And yet he continues to plod on to the Apostle Paul. And once he gets there, Paul realizes that the church is concerned about Epaphroditus. And so instead of keeping this warrior with him, which he would have served Paul greatly, it had been a great benefit to Paul to keep Epaphroditus with him, he sends him back to the church with this letter. This sacrificial gift of Epaphroditus along with this letter of encouragement. But we see in the letter that somewhere along the way, Paul realized there was conflict in the church. There was disunity. And so he sends this letter to solidify unity in the gospel. And as we've seen throughout the the letter, you can only be united in the gospel. You can only pursue unity in the context of the church if you do so in light of the way Jesus pursued us. He had great advantage. He had great privileges. Jesus had all authority. And yet he set it aside for the good of others. And that's how we pursue unity in the church. We take our rights. We take our privileges. We take our advantages. We take our skills. We take our gifts what might bring a name to ourselves, give us power, and we set those aside and we leverage them for the good of others. And here in this section, Paul digs deep into the gospel. And he says, if you're going to if you're going to serve one another with great sacrificial joy, you've got to do so understanding the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to you by faith in the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse one. And I would invite you to lean in and hear these words as the words of life, as the words that unpackage and unveil and reveal to us Christ, which we need more than anything, Christ And we plead and we beg as we read that God would show us by the Spirit Christ. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason to have confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Oh God, we pray today that You would show us Christ. By first of all, showing us that before Christ, our righteousness, our good deeds, those things that we would hold up to you and say, are you happy with me? Those things are rubbish compared to the glory of Christ. And God, we would first and foremost trust and hope in his righteousness, which nothing compares. And I pray that everyone who hears this word today would walk away gaining Christ, hoping in Christ. We would no longer have confidence in our flesh, but our hope would be Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. May be seated. About seven years ago, my dad showed up at our house around Christmas with the gift of all gifts, you know how grandparents are. They, they have this goal to give your kids things in which they will love them forever. And things, sometimes things in which you will never compare to as you try to give them gifts around Christmas time. But he showed up at our house with two four-wheelers on a trailer, pulled in the driveway, and there they were in all their glory, two four-wheelers. Now, this is something our kids had wanted motorcycles, four-wheelers, but we lived in a context that, uh, or, or a house where that was impossible to have. And then we moved here and we have a big yard and we have trails that they can uh, ride these things on. And so my dad thought, now's the time. And so he shows up at Christmas, didn't even tell us he was bringing them, shows up in the driveway, two four-wheelers. My kids are, you know, beyond excited and it's around Christmas time, and so here they go through the backyard, and they're making trails. They're tearing my yard all to pieces, and, and, and it's looking like a mess in the backyard, and they just keep going, keep going. And, and there was some rain that had occurred one day, and I was watching them as they were just continually tearing. You can see I'm saying still bitter about what they did to my backyard. But I was watching them one day as mud is just flying everywhere, and I'm looking out the back. Uh, the, the back of the house and 
and, and I see the mud in the backyard and they're down at the bottom of the hill and sometimes I couldn't even see the top of their heads, but I could see the mud flying up in the air. And as I watched them, I noticed the mud continued to get darker. And, and before long, I noticed that the four-wheelers and the riders of the four-wheelers were, were sprinkled in black stuff. And it dawned on me exactly what they had done. About the time my neighbor walks over and he had smelled something. Something had waffled through his house. And so he thought he would come out to see what was going on. And he walks up to my kids who are covered now in total black mud, we'll call it. And he says, do you guys know what this is? And he's a very kind man. He wasn't being a jerk, which I'm very thankful of, because if I was him at that moment, I would have probably been a jerk. He said, do you guys know what this is? This is your house's leech field. And my kids had so destroyed the backyard and at the bottom of the hill, they had begun running these four wheelers through our leech field, which if you don't know what that is. That is kind of the end of the septic tank. That's where everything ends up and it is supposed to decompose there. And yet they had tore that area of our yard up so bad that the stuff is just flying everywhere and all over them. And much damage to our septic area, which I've had to repair over the years. But I remember they're, they're like, what's a septic tank? What's a leach field? What are you talking about sewage? And I remember looking at one of them and explaining, well, let me explain this to you. The, the stuff that's flying in the air, some of that used to be in your body. And at one point, you left that in the toilet. And then it ran from the house through a big concrete block and then out here, and this is where it's supposed to decompose. You have interrupted the decomposing process. And it's all over you. And I'll never forget the kid's response. Instead of saying, oh no, we're covered in stuff. They said, okay, can we go back to writing? Okay, do we have to stop? No, you can't ride over here. You can't do this anymore. Why not? This is fun. We'll go over here. No, this is the best place to ride. Look at all the mud. Yes, this isn't mud. And Paul says that's the same thing that we do when we are confronted with what our righteousness really is before God. Before God, the Bible describes our righteousness as filthy rags. And that is a rated G translation. It's actually dirty toilet paper before God compared to the righteousness of Christ. And yet when we're confronted with that, we don't have we don't we don't want to believe it. Like the kid on the four-wheeler, we say, yeah, 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 but can I go back to playing with it? Can I, can I go back to plodding through this mess? You know, th- this is kind of fun. 
My righteousness, doing all of these good things and holding it up to God, it makes me feel special. And God is saying, no, it's waste. It doesn't work. And yet we want to continue to muck through it. And Paul's explaining this to the Philippians in light of what Christ has done for him. And first of all, as he explains this idea, he, he points to false teachers who would prop up their own righteousness and then incite in the church a self-righteousness. And Paul is very stern as he calls these men out. Notice verse 4. He says, finally, my brothers, my family, rejoice in the Lord. Now, remember throughout Philippians, this word rejoice, it is just a command. Joy. It's like walking up to somebody and saying, happy, which would mean be happy. It's a command with an explanation point. You rejoice. You have joy. And he's taught us to do this in Christ, to be content in Christ, no matter our circumstances. And he says to write the same things to you is no trouble and it is safe for you. And we're reminded here, even in the book of Galatians, where Paul addresses the issue of Judaism. In the church were the Judaizers. They were taking the issue of circumcision and they were requiring it for fellowship in the church. They were saying, yeah, you can believe in Jesus. You can follow Jesus. That's good. You should do that. But to be really accepted, you've got to add circumcision to the Gentile who's following Christ, now you have to be circumcised to finish the deal, to really be a part of the family of God. And Paul in Galatians, he would say, no, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Paul says, it's not a problem for me to address this because notice it's safe for you. Your soul's at stake. And that's why he uses the language in verse 2 when he says, look out for the dogs. Now, dogs was a term that Judaizers would use of the Gentiles. They looked down upon them as dogs. Not we have dogs in our house and we take care of them, take them to the vet, feed them. But, but in their mind would be this varmint, homeless, on the side of the road, feasting upon scraps. And that's the way the Judaizers looked at the Gentiles. They were unclean, dirty dogs. And yet Paul flips it here. He says, no, these false teachers are dogs and they're evildoers. They, they, they're twisted. They deceive. And he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, as we've talked about, circumcision and requiring circumcision for fellowship was at the heart of their teaching. But how does Paul describe that requirement here? He says, you look out for those dogs, those evildoers, those men who are just mutilating your flesh. It's a very graphic way to describe their false teaching. And why would he say it that way? Because the, the Judaizers are requiring circumcision for salvation to be accepted. And yet circumcision was the sign God commanded that set God's people apart according to the flesh. But the promise of the gospel is that God's people would be set apart by the spirit, by faith in Christ. And so to replace the gospel with circumcision is useless. You're just mutilating the flesh. 
It's not earning anything before God. That's not the gospel. It's a very graphic way for him to say that is a vain, cruel, and unusual punishment in the church because you're not earning anything before God. And he says, verse 3, for we are the circumcision. He refers to the church. The church is the promise that God made through circumcision. He will set a people apart to himself. How has he done that? By faith in Christ, in the gospel. And he says, by the spirit, we worship God. We have the presence of God by the spirit of God because of the glory that is in Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, in the resurrection. We believe in him. So we put no confidence in the flesh. And those who do put confidence in the flesh and require this fleshly act, they're just mutilating the flesh. It's cruel and unusual punishment. Circumcision pointed to the gospel. It wasn't the gospel. And to make it the gospel was cruel. But how often do we do the same things in the church? Baptism points to the gospel. Baptism is not the gospel. Baptism is a glorious picture of the gospel that we make much of around here. We declare in a pool of water that that there is one who is dead in sin. They were drowning in sin. They were suffocating in sin. And yet because Christ endured the wrath of God and he was immersed under the wrath of God, they can be raised up into new life. And that is a sign. That is a symbol of the gospel. But it's not the gospel. But if you begin to say baptism is necessary for salvation, you make baptism the gospel. And it's a false gospel. And Paul would say it's cruel to do that to somebody. It's the same thing they're doing with circumcision. You're making them go through this weird thing over here, get in a cattle trough before all these people and say, and then they go to hell because they trust in that for salvation. That's cruel. It would be cruel for you to act as though church attendance is necessary for salvation. That's cruel and unusual punishment. You make people show up here every day or every, yeah, every day. Let's do it every day now. Every Sunday, you make them sing these songs, give their money. You make them give their money. You make them sit in here for 40 to 45 minutes listening to teaching. And if you begin to act like those who do that are better Christians or they're closer to heaven than those who don't, that's cruel and unusual punishment. You're wearing people out. You're weighing them down and then sending them to hell. No, worship points to the glorious gospel. We come in here and we celebrate the gospel. We don't believe any of this saves us or gets us closer to heaven. We do it because of the gospel. Because of the, it's not the gospel. And so we want to be clear what the gospel is. It is the good news that you can have your sins forgiven because Jesus died for your sins. It is the good news that you can be raised up from death to rule and reign with Jesus forever. And that is the good news of your hope. That is the gospel. And you can't replace the gospel with any of these other things. That is cruel. You're causing people to trust and hope in things that will send them to hell. And in verse 4 he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has confidence or hope in the flesh, meaning anything you could do, 
any sign, any symbol, any tradition you could go through, any behavior. If anybody has any kind of resume they could read about who they are or what they've done that would get them closer to heaven or make them more acceptable to God or save their soul, listen, I'm at the top of the list. Nobody compares to me. So if we're going to read out resumes, Paul says, I know you got these teachers coming in the church and they're teaching circumcision, tradition, festivals. You got to become Jewish. You got to take on this Jewish, the, the, the Jewish tradition according to the flesh. And they're acting like they're some big shots. Listen, they've never interacted with me. Because I had all I had it all together. I was circumcised. Notice the text on the eighth day. This is required of every Jew. Again, this was the symbol that set them apart. Notice as the people of Israel, I was born in the right place to the right people. And that was signified in this way. In obedience to the law, I was the tribe of Benjamin. This is a prestigious tribe among Israel. And Paul just sums it up here. It says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews through and through. According to the flesh, you don't come with better stock than me. I'm, I'm the best of the best. God, God, I'm special according to the flesh. And he says, as to the law of Pharisee, you see what the Pharisees did is they they loved the law. They loved the law so much that they came up with the rules to keep you from breaking the law. You're to keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, then they came up with more rules to keep the Sabbath day holy. You, you don't take your ox out on Saturday. You don't crack an egg or yeah, Saturday. You don't take your you don't crack an egg on Saturday. And they came up with all these rules. And their rules became so special to them that when they would follow the rules, they would point it out. They would point out to what they wore. Look, I know the Word of God. I've got, I've got all my Pharisee badges and, and, and garb on. Look, I'm giving in front of the temple. And they would blow horns and shake bells to say, look, look at this Pharisee. He, he's not just obeying the law. He's doing more than the law. And Paul says, I was the top Pharisee in my class. I was the number one draft pick. You didn't get better at Phariseeism than me. And notice how he describes it as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You, you see, the Pharisees and Judaizers, they, they taught Jesus plus circumcision Adherence to the law, traditions. And so when the church shows up and they start saying, no, 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 it's just about Jesus. When Jesus shows up and he points to the Pharisees and says, you're just whitewashed tombs. Like on the outside, you look good, but you're full of dead man's bones. It's all tradition. It's all this outward exterior stuff. They were angered and they sought to stamp out the gospel by stamping out the church. And we saw Paul in Acts chapter 9, who was out to kill Christians because he hated the gospel. That's how committed he was to the law, is he hated the gospel that much. That's how committed Judaizer he was. He is out to kill Christians, to stamp out the gospel. And we see in Acts chapter 9, he wakes up and he's headed out to kill Christians and 
Jesus blinds him, knocks him off of his horse and saves him. But Paul says, that's who I was before the gospel. And he goes on and he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You, you can put my stats up against anyone. Ask anybody you know who knows me. They know I'm not, not just a good guy, a nice guy. Paul does everything he teaches. He obeys the law. This is who Paul is. Paul says, if anybody has confidence in the flesh, it would be me. Paul is the goat of Judaism. He's the MJ of Judaism. Or LeBron. Whichever side you fall on that debate, that's who he is. If Paul was a Southern Baptist, he would say, I was born in a Baptist hospital in downtown Nashville overlooking the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention. And then the first Sunday I was alive, my mom took me into the nursery at my Southern Baptist church. And eventually I graduated from nursery before anyone else in my nursery class. And I was memorizing the verses. And before long, I was in the service before anybody else seated with my uh, my parents on the front row, listening to the word of God week after week after week. And at age five, I got baptized. And then at age 19, I got baptized again just to make sure it worked. Paul says, I was the, the Timothy Award winner every year in Awana. I had so many Awana badges. They were weighing me down. My shelves were cracking at home. I was in the youth group. I was the first one there getting the the sound ready for the youth worship. I went to Mfuge. I sung in the youth choir in the 80s. I've been on mission trips. I had Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong and B.H. Carroll posters in my room. This is who I was, Paul says, according to the flesh. You didn't get any better than me. Paul says, my resume read like nobody else's. But notice verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted it loss for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul's former life, all of that was gain. It was dividends. He earned praise. He earned a reputation. And before God, he earned salvation. But when he saw Christ, notice he says it was loss. There was no benefit. Paul said, investing in my flesh and my accomplishments when I came to know Christ, that was a bad investment. That, that was an investment in hell. Because when I held those things up to God, they didn't get me anywhere. Actually, those things kept me from God. All of my fleshly accomplishments, who I was, what I did, it kept me from God. So I had to take all of those things and say, no, they're lost. They're earning me hell because they're separating me from God. Because if I can do all of that, I don't need Christ. I can get to God on my own. And that's what I thought. And I had to come to terms with the fact that was loss. That was an eternally bad investment. I had to lose it all. And the reality is, as we think about the best things we do, think about that for a moment. The best things 
that you do for Jesus, what are they? If you just wrote them out right now, what would they be? Preaching sermons, leading BFG, small group, showing up to serve kids, front line. What are the best things that you do? Mission trips. Some of you have been on a mission trip. It's a very dangerous, rustic places. The best things that you do. Your consistency here week after week. Anytime somebody needs, sir, you're there. You're, you're front and center. The best things you do. Here's the danger. If you're thinking the best things you do are what gets you to heaven, those best things are what's keeping you from heaven. Sometimes our best for Jesus can keep us from Jesus. When we think that's what's earning us salvation before God. So I wonder what they are for you today. For some of us, it's just, I was born in this glorious country, which we should be very, very thankful for. And you think just because you were born here, just like Paul was born in Israel, that's what's going to get you to heaven. And if you're hoping in that, that's what's keeping you from heaven. Some of you... You, you worked your way up the campus ministry ladder. You came in as a freshman, didn't know what's going on. And then by the time you graduated, you were leading a Bible study every day of the week. You, you, you're, you're even raising funds to be on staff. And you worked your way up that ladder. And if you think that's what's getting you to heaven, is climbing that ladder, that's what's keeping you from heaven. You're trusting in those things instead of Jesus. And there's this false gospel now that we kind of interact with so much around here. It's just the false gospel of specialness. And you think about the kids who were raised with participation trophies. And mom and dad said, you deserve to have an easy life. And I'm going to make sure you get everything you want all the time. Well, those people now are grown adults who believe that God is telling them the same thing. That it doesn't matter who you are. You are special. And when you stand before God, you're going to you're going to work it out with God and you're going to get a participation trophy in the end. And there's a lot of people who believe they're going to heaven just because they're special. That's a false gospel. And if your specialness is what you're trusting in to get to heaven... It is your specialness that's keeping you from heaven. It is only by Christ. Only by Christ. And you have to see anything that competes with Christ as an eternally bad investment. It is a loss. You will lose your soul. You will spend eternity in hell apart from Christ. If you have the tinge of trust in anything other than Christ. You see, what we like to do is say... I believe the gospel. Jesus died for my sins, rose from the dead. He's ruling and reigning. I believe that. But but let me go over here because I want a little credit. I want people to look at me and say he's got it together. And Paul says, if you trust in anything over here, you're not getting to heaven. You've got to see all of this as an eternally bad investment for your eternity. Notice verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Now, notice, it's not just these things are bad. 
the good things you do, you should do them when they point to the gospel. When they serve others in the name of Jesus. When they help you delight in the gospel more, you should delight in those things. But he says here, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, the word worth is used throughout Philippians. It means weight or gravity. And he says, there's nothing I could do or ever do, even the, the best moments where I'm, I am the, I'm the most obedient and I, I taste the joy of obedience, even in that, that fleeting moment, it, nothing compares Nothing outweighs knowing Christ in the gospel. Jesus, my Lord, the one who is raised from the dead. Nothing surpassing. It surpasses it all. Nothing compares to it. So just as Paul would say, no one compared to me and my resume, nothing compares to the gospel. So my resume is lost. Notice, he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things Now, the language here is that it has totally been raised to the ground. It's like someone came into my kingdom, uh, my kingdom of obedience, my kingdom of righteousness, and they raised it to the ground and there's nothing left in the presence of Christ. Knowing the gospel, it doesn't compare. It is as if nothing is left. And then he says, I count and I consider them as rubbish. Now, the word there is Literally, dung. I consider all of my righteousness. If it's something I'm going to trust in to get to heaven, I've got to look up on it and say, that is dung. And he says that I may gain Christ for the sake of Christ. And what he's saying here is I can't take my dung, righteousness, and Christ righteousness and put them together and offer them to God. It doesn't work that way. It's only the righteousness of Christ. Now, what's interesting, I had a friend in Bible college. And I didn't say this in the first service, so I'll clarify now. He was from the Dominican Republic. And he didn't know that the word dung, the, the most extreme version of that that we would use in our culture, he didn't know that was a profanity. So he preached this whole sermon Saying that word. And all of us little preacher boys are holding the desk. Thinking God is going to strike him dead. So I'm not going to use that word. Even though after the first service someone said, I think you should use that word. But that's how extreme Paul is here. It is garbage. It is dung. It's dung. We got kids in here so I won't even get close. It's waste. It's refuse. That's what it is when you compare it to Christ. When you hold it up next to Christ, it doesn't even, it's nothing. It's, It's more than nothing. It's disgusting. And Paul says, that's what I was guilty of. But I had to consider it all dung and then see the surpassing worth of Christ. And notice verse 9. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law. I had to understand that I couldn't get to God through the law. Now, the law was good. We think about the Ten Commandments. They reveal God's holy character. He is righteous. But the point of the law is to hold up a mirror to yourself and say, you can't get to God through the law because you are unrighteous. So you're not going to get to God that way. 
Even if you do some of the law, James would say if you fail in one part, you're guilty of the whole thing. The law of God is like a pane of glass. And to get to God through the law, there cannot be a scratch on it. There can't be a dent in it. If you're going to get to the end, you say, God, here's my resume according to the law. It's perfect. It is this glorious pane of glass. Paul says you can't get there that way because all of our obedience has deans and dents. And some of us have taken a sledgehammer to that pane of glass and we have smashed it. If you, if you, you smash it in one part, it's, you're not going to go and say, oh, I, I got this crack on this pane of glass. I think I'll put it up in my living room. No, it's useless. That's his point. Obedience, according to the law, is useless to get to heaven. But notice what he says. I can't do it, but it comes through faith in Christ. Confidence in Christ, not myself. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now notice what God requires is perfection. But notice here, God provides that perfection for you. God says you have to be righteous to get to heaven. He doesn't change it. He doesn't change the standard for you at all, ever. It's complete righteousness inside and out to get to heaven, to stand before God. He who has clean hands and a pure heart is the only one who can stand before God forever. Pure righteousness. And he hasn't ever changed the standards. That's what he requires. But here's the good news. What he requires, he has provided in Christ. And all you have to do is trust Christ. His death, His life for you. That is the righteousness you need. And what Paul is saying here is, is this is kind of the way it works out for us. God says, for you to get into heaven, you need a treasure chest full of wealth. Wealth. And you will never be able to earn the wealth in that treasure chest. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you what you need to get into heaven. But here's what we do when we stand before God. Instead of the treasure chest He provided, we hold up our dung. And it's insulting to God. Why would you trust in your righteousness when I've given you the righteousness of Christ? You know how insulting that is? It's like when I was 16 and I would get off work or out of school or after practice and you know, when you're 16 in small town, USA, at least in the 90s, what you did is you, you know, I had a nice truck. You kind of drive through town, see your friends on the strip. And then all my friends used to hang out at McDonald's after school. We'd just all hang out there. And I, I would always go to McDonald's and I would always order the number two. And I don't know who got me on this. When I was 18, but I would get a number two with mayonnaise only. That's disgusting to me right now. Like that is disgusting, but that's what I would order. And then eventually I would make my way to my grandmother's house. And she was, she's the kind of person that she wanted to serve everyone that walked in her door. And she would get irritated if you didn't let her serve you. Like if you walked in her kitchen and you began to prepare a meal for yourself, she would get angry. 
What are you doing? Sit down. And every day I'd come over, she would say those words, did you eat yet? And on the days when I would start by McDonald's, I would have to say, yep. What did you eat? McDonald's, number two. Both. Why would you eat that? Don't you know I prepare a, a dinner every day for our family and, and people stop by and it's fried chicken, fried okra, mashed potatoes, green beans, and you have a disgusting cheeseburger with mayonnaise on it? And on top of that, you paid for it? Why would you use your money? This is free. This is better. I'm getting a preacher voice, but she was kind of like that. But you know how insulting it was? And sometimes I would take my McDonald's to her kitchen table. And it would drive her crazy. It was so insulting. Why would you do that? But how many of us do that before God? He's prepared a feast to the gospel for us. And we got our little McDonald's with mayonnaise on a cheeseburger, which is disgusting. That we paid for. It doesn't even compare. And it insults God. He's given us the righteousness of Christ and we have our septic self-righteousness that we're trying to offer Him. But notice verse 10. Why do we trust in Christ that we may know Him in the power of His resurrection? Once we believe the gospel, the Spirit lives within us and we begin to understand the power of the gospel in our life. You see, Christ's obedience doesn't lead us to disobedience. No, Christ's obedience frees us up to radical obedience. Uh, obedience that suffers with great joy for others. It's not just some list. I'm going to go through my list. No, when I have the righteousness of Christ, I'm free to give my whole self over to others. That's the obedience. Notice he says that I may know the power of the resurrection. When we have the spirit living without us, we talk about this in Acts 1.8. We are witnesses. We declare the kingship of Christ, even in the fear of death. And we're willing to suffer because we know that we will be raised with him. Notice he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The best way to translate that is under, I serve understanding that I shall, I shall no matter what happens to me, be raised from the dead. And so I am free to serve. And as I serve in that way, I'm no longer worried about my list. I'm no longer worried about who I am and all the little things I do to make God happy. No, I am free knowing God will raise my corpse up from the dead. And so I can give myself over to others wholly, not worried about the consequences, knowing God will raise me from the dead. You see, the righteousness of Christ frees us up to obey in radical ways. You see, when we cling to our self-righteousness, how do we serve? When our service is about what I'm doing, what are we doing? God, are you happy with me? God, are you happy with me? You see all the things I'm doing for you? And what do we do with others? We don't serve others. We compare ourselves to others. Look at all the things I do that they don't do. And we're in this trap of self-righteousness and we're not free to serve others. But when God has already accepted us in Christ, we are free to serve because we know God's already happy with us. He's already seen our righteousness and it's the righteousness of Christ. So we're not trying to earn anything with him. We're not weighed down with guilt and misery. No, we're free and we're happy to serve others. And we don't, we're not comparing ourselves to others. No, we're, we're, we're bowing down to serve others. We don't care what anybody else thinks of us. We are free with great joy to suffer. 
There's no stat line anymore. It's just experiencing the power of the Spirit and suffering like the Son in the Son, knowing God will raise us from the dead. It's the security of sonship. But I wonder how many of us, we find ourselves in that trap of self-righteousness where we're just sort of plodding through the muck. And we're just back and forth. And, 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 and when we look around, we're really just creating a mess for ourselves. And before Jesus, we're standing there in the septic of our self-righteousness. And the glorious thing about the gospel is it doesn't matter how sinful you were. It doesn't matter how self-righteous you are today. The, the disgusting nature of your sin and the vomitous nature of your self-righteousness. God doesn't just wipe us clean and fix the mess of the leech field of self-righteousness that we've created, making ourselves and other people miserable. No, He does something far more glorious. He covers us in the righteousness of His Son when we believe in Him. As if we had never sinned and we always obeyed. As if the septic tank never existed. And we're loved and doted on in Christ as if we were Christ. And that frees us up to serve as Christ.